Hello and welcome. This is episode six in our Burning Heart podcast series, Deuteronomy Wellness God's Way. We originally wrote the series for film, so do check out the videos if you can, free on our website at burningheart.org forward slash Deuteronomy. But we wanted a podcast version too, which is obviously this. It's really great to have you join with me again for this episode. I'm David Ingle, the writer of the series and founder and director of Burning Heart, and it's a joy to have you with us once again. One of my heroes is a man called Alfred the Great. He's the only English king to earn that title great, and he's usually remembered for his heroic defence of his kingdom against the Vikings, which laid the foundations for the creation of the nation of England. If you haven't picked it up yet, I'm a bit of a history nut, and yes, we are going back a bit, a little over a thousand years. But I I go here because what's really inspired me is that alongside all that military success, he was also a man of great faith in Jesus, and something of a scholar. A lesser-known achievement of his was the creation of one of the greatest law codes in early English history. And he started his law code by turning back to the Bible, looking at the Ten Commandments and some bits of Exodus, and then reflecting on the New Testament and how we as Christians should understand and apply Old Testament laws in our context. Now, most of us are probably unlikely to be writing national laws anytime soon, but that concern to work out how the laws of the Old Testament should relate to us as Christians today is one that we should all share. And if we're honest, most of us don't find it easy. Some aspects of the Old Testament law, or Torah, are easier to understand than others. We've already looked at various ways in which this book of Deuteronomy is relevant and applicable to us as Christians. And when it speaks of the character or grace of God, or of our need for repentance and forgiveness or salvation, we can see the connections quite easily. But we're going to turn now to the bits of Deuteronomy that are harder to get our heads around. The details. Individual commands found in chapters 12 to 26 about all the different aspects of life and how the Israelites were supposed to live. And here we find it much harder. What applies to me and how and what doesn't? As we look at these chapters, we'll ask what they teach us about how to live as the people of God. But as we do, we'll also be looking more widely as well and asking the question, how as Christians should we read and understand Old Testament commandments more generally? What's their relevance to me now? How does God speak to us through them and how do they show me wellness God's way? The full English breakfast is a British classic and a favourite of mine. Eggs, sausages, bacon, black pudding and so on. But if I was an Old Testament Israelite, most of it would be off limits for me. Along with pork pies, oysters, prawns and a host of other things that most of us wouldn't think twice about eating. But which Deuteronomy 14 tells the Israelites not to eat. And Christians have always eaten foods and done plenty of other things that aren't allowed in the Old Testament law. And there are also lots of things that the Lord tells the Israelites to do that we don't. We don't sacrifice animals, worship only in Jerusalem, or cancel all debts every seven years. Although I'm guessing some of us would be quite keen on that last one. And yet, when it comes to other parts of the law, we are as committed to them as 
any ancient Israelite. For instance, we still count Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, with its call to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, as the greatest commandment. All of which begs the question, why? Or more specifically, why this, but not that? And to answer that question, before we turn back to Deuteronomy, we have to look forward to the New Testament. And this tension between the things that we do and the things that we don't reflects two seemingly very different streams of what the New Testament teaches about the law. First of all, it strongly affirms it. As Paul explained to Timothy, all scripture, which includes the law, includes Deuteronomy, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. Clearly, Paul anticipated that we'd read and love books like Deuteronomy and that we would use them as a guide and resource for our training in righteousness. Because these words are God-breathed and through them God speaks to us by the Holy Spirit. And yet elsewhere, Paul and the rest of the New Testament writers are equally clear that we no longer have to follow the law. As Paul puts it very simply in Romans 6.14, you are not under the law, but under grace. Now that may all seem like a contradiction, but it's not. The New Testament is clear that for Christians, the Old Testament law is useful and God still speaks to us through it, but we are no longer bound by it. Paul uses a helpful analogy in Galatians 3 and 4, comparing the law to a tutor or guardian. He compares the Old Testament to our childhood, with maturity coming through Jesus. And he explains that while we're children, we're subject to the authority of our tutors. But once we reach adulthood, that changes. Now, I never had a home tutor, but the illustration still works as I think back to my experience of school. There were lots of rules and even punishments that I was under while I was at school that no longer apply to me. I don't need to worry about homework or detentions or school rules. And Paul tells us that a similar dynamic is at work as we move from the old covenant and the law to the new covenant in Jesus. And yet my school days have helped me to understand and live life as a grown-up. I still use what I learnt in maths and English and history and the rest. And I now see that many of the rules were there for my own good. So Even though my teachers can't punish me for things like fighting or bullying, I do still try not to do them. And so it is with the law. It no longer has authority over us as Christians. But as Paul says elsewhere in Romans 7.12, it is holy, righteous and good. And most importantly of all, it still reveals God to us. It shows us his character and his ways. It unpacks what he loves and what he hates. And it shows us the importance of living life according to his ways and what it looks like to do that. And that is priceless. This all means, though, that in many ways the question we tend to ask, am I still bound by this command, is the wrong question. Instead, we should be asking, What does this teach me about God and what it means to be his people? And if we ask those questions, Deuteronomy 12 to 26 immediately begins to have relevance for us. 
If you read through the whole section, for instance, you'll see all kinds of themes and priorities. Many scholars point out that the basic outline of these chapters seems to loosely follow the order of the Ten Commandments. And so, once again, we see the first priority of our relationship with God and our worship emphasised, as it has been throughout the book. But then, like the Ten Commandments themselves, the focus moves on to our relationships with each other and all the various details of life. And the level of detail we find in these laws shows us that God is not a distant, up-there God, but that he cares about every aspect and detail of our lives, down to what we eat and what we wear. How gloriously different from so many religions, that God wants to be involved in our whole lives, Monday to Saturday as well as Sunday, secular things as well as church stuff. Not only that, but he cares about all of us. Most ancient religions were focused on the rich and powerful and privileged. And Deuteronomy does talk about them. I mean, half of Deuteronomy 17 is all about future kings of Israel. But it also talks about supporting the poor, includes a law to protect the rights of foreign women captured in war, and gives specific instructions to rich employers to make sure their workers are not exploited. How wonderful is that? And if you've ever felt small or insignificant in this world, well, those verses are for you. A reminder that God cares about you. God loves you. And I could go on. There's plenty of themes here. But it isn't just in the themes of these commands that we can find God. We can also find him in the details. Which, at its best, is what lies behind that consistent question. Does this law apply to me? Now, on one level, the answer is always yes. As Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed. All of the laws tells us something of him, and God speaks to us through every verse. On another level, though, the answer is always no. We are not under the law, and the punishments we read about later in the book no longer apply to us. And so the question is perhaps better put, how does this law apply to me? What can I learn about God from it? And in order to answer those questions, we need to ask another. Why is this here? What's the purpose of this law? And back in the time of the Reformation, some brilliant people spent a lot of time wrestling with this question. They came up with three helpful categories of Old Testament law. The civic, the ceremonial and the moral. The first is the civic national laws and instructions for how society should run. And we're no longer part of ancient Israel, and so these don't apply to us directly. And yet that doesn't make them irrelevant. In fact, quite the opposite. Because they show us something of God's heart and his vision for this world he's created. Let me give you an example. Deuteronomy 24.19 When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, Do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow. Now, I don't own any wheat fields. And even if I did, I don't think that this law would apply directly to me. Because the point of the law was to provide food and sustenance for the poor, the powerless and the disadvantaged in society. Now, in an ancient society like Israel, 
The best way to do that was to let them glean, as this practice is called, the leftovers and uncut bits of fields and vineyards. And if you read the book of Ruth, you'll find this principle in action. But today, there are much better ways to look after the poor and disadvantaged than leaving bunches of wheat on the floor of a field and hoping that someone spots them. But the principle, the why behind the law, now that is still relevant. God doesn't change, so this teaches us that he cares and will always care about the disadvantaged in society, and so we, as his people, should act accordingly. And there are so many different examples of Christians doing exactly that, such as food banks, where people donate or volunteer to help bring food to those who can't afford to buy it for themselves. Whether they realise it or not, those people are acting on what we read here in Deuteronomy 24.19, an example of how we can apply what the reformers called the civic law in our lives. The second type of law that they identified was the ceremonial. All the instructions and commands about Israel's worship, and particularly the temple and sacrificial system. And the main purpose of these laws was actually to point forwards to Jesus. The best place to look for an explanation of all this is the New Testament book of Hebrews. And chapters 9 and 10 are all about the Old Testament temple and sacrifices, and how they are what the writer describes as a shadow of the good things that are coming, by which he means everything we receive because of what Jesus has done for us. Again, let me give you an example. This section of detailed laws opens in chapter 12 with a big chunk on worship, and it has two main points. The first is that the Israelites were told to get rid of all pagan worship and practices throughout the land. And the second is that they were then commanded to worship God only in the place the Lord your God will choose, i.e. initially at the tabernacle, which started out in Shiloh, and then later in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, there's lots we could look at here, but I think that the main point is to highlight and stress that there is only one way to God, first through this sacrificial system and then through the one to which it points, Jesus. And that's increasingly controversial in our world and culture, in which we're told that all the different religions of the world are simply different paths up the same mountain, or in which we're encouraged to explore our spirituality in our own way without being bound by any one faith or dogma. But as we read this, those ideas just fall apart. It's so clear that all the different religions around them didn't lead to God. In fact, quite the opposite, they led them away from God. And they're not to worship God as they please. No, the only way to God is the way that he has given us. As Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So that's the second type of law, the ceremonial, the whole system of Israelite sacrifices and worship, all of which are a shadow pointing forward to Jesus. The final type of law that the reformers identified was the moral. These are just simple moral commands, and they're as valid now as they were then. And even though we're not under them like the Israelites were, we are still called to do them. 
Not because we're compelled to, but because they show us God's ways. I quoted before from Romans 6.14, you're not under the law, but under grace. Perhaps surprisingly to us though, that isn't an invitation to do what we like, but actually part of a call to live life God's ways. And in the preceding verses, Paul explains that in Jesus, we are empowered to live righteous lives, explaining that sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. So what does this look like in practice in Deuteronomy? Well, many of the big themes we've looked at in the previous chapters, such as the command to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul and strength, fall into this category. They're general principles for the relationship between God and his people throughout the ages. Whereas most of the detailed laws in chapters 12 to 26 probably fall into the other two categories. But there are some bits in these chapters which fall into the moral category too. For instance, Deuteronomy 25.15, a command for shopkeepers and people buying and selling goods. Do not have two differing weights in your bag, one heavy and one light you must have accurate and honest weights and measures. Why? Well, using dodgy weights and measures is a way of cheating customers. It's a form of dishonesty or small-scale theft, and that goes against God's character. So Moses continues, For the Lord your God detests anyone who does these things, anyone who deals dishonestly. It's a moral command that is rooted in who God is, If he hated dishonesty then, then he still hates it, and we shouldn't do it. And of course, that actually means that this principle is much more widely applicable than just calling for honesty amongst shopkeepers. The Bible doesn't say anything about modern issues like dishonest expenses claims or fiddling company accounts, but I think it's pretty clear from this verse that we shouldn't do them. So that's an example of the third type of law what the reformers called the moral law. Now, as I said, I find this division of the law into three different categories, the civic, the ceremonial and the moral, really helpful. Because asking which category any particular law falls into helps me to work out why it was written, and so what God might be saying to me through it. But it is just a framework to help us. The threefold structure isn't found anywhere in the Bible, and at times it can be unclear which category to put a law into. So you could actually say that that last example I used, the command to use accurate weights and measures, is as much a civic command as a moral one. Honest business practices are key in any society. And that's fine, because this categorisation should just be a framework to help us work out how we can learn from and apply whichever law it is, in our context. And it's also fine if at times we just end up confused and can't work out what the point of a law is. Use whatever help you can find, friends, pastors, books, this series, and of course, most importantly of all, pray. Ask the Holy Spirit for help. But don't worry if you don't understand everything. There's a command in Deuteronomy 22.11 that I've never been able to work out. Do not wear clothes of wool and linen together. Many people, much cleverer than me, have spent a lot of time trying to work out what the point of that law is, and much of what they say is very persuasive. But I have to confess, I'm still not sure any of us know the answer. But while some details may elude us, 
hopefully the overall picture is clear. The point of all these laws is to draw us closer to God, to show us his ways and help us work out what it means in practice to live for him. So as we finish, shall we pray that God would help us as we do? Lord God, thank you for these wonderful chapters, however difficult to understand we sometimes find them. Please open the eyes of all our hearts that we may meet you as we read them and learn how better to love you. And then help us to put what we learn into practice. Help us to love you more in all we do. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen.